Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. are back with Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and hopefully less fan-biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more context about the show. Before we get into DS9 Season 2, Episode 1, The Homecoming, I wanted to announce some changes for this season. So unlike before where we released week by week, episode by episode, we're going to be releasing the episodes first on Patreon. And then when we're done with the season, we'll release all the episodes on the public Southpod network feed. The first reason for this is because trying to maintain a week by week schedule is really hard. And secondly, because we have multiple shows on the network, It'll just make it easier to find the whole season if it's released at once and clustered together. Especially if you wanted to find previous seasons, then all the episodes will be in sequential order. Releasing it all at once will also make it easier for people to follow along at their own pace. Release pressure. Yes. But if you don't want to wait and want the episodes as soon as we release them, then you can find it on the Southpaw Patreon. You can find the link on our show notes, as well as links for Southpaw merch and also for our Liberation Martial Arts program. Liberation Martial Arts already has several collectives and gyms using it, families using it, trainers using it, and individuals using it. It's really gotten a positive response and the community keeps growing. And if you sign up for the Liberation Martial Arts tier, you get all the SDS9 episodes included. So check that out. Yeah, and my coach at Baltimore 
in Baltimore, Guardian Jiu-Jitsu just signed up and we're very excited to start implementing it into some of our practice. So just do it. Fuck Nike. (laughs) Excellent. Now, Scott, can you tell us about this episode? There's nothing I would rather do. Welcome back. So season two, episode one, The Homecoming, moving forward, we are not doing Netflix order. We are not on Netflix anymore, nerds. That includes myself. So we are introduced, Odo stops Quark to talk about a smuggling freighter that Quark gave some intel for. Quark was right for once, and this makes Odo confused. He doesn't understand it. Quark says, Odo and them are friends, and Odo is dubious, but Quark's Quark wants this relationship to work. Odo says that'll be the day when they're in a relationship. Because uh, as like, Odo is pretty flummoxed at the move. Quark reveals to Rom that is actually a Ferengi principle in the rules of acu- acquisition to do positive by the enemy every once in a while. It confuses them. Quark then meets with Rianaj, a friend and Boslik freighter, freighter captain. And they have like a little flirtatious thing going on. She asks Quark about is if he knows anyone going to Bajor and gives Quark an earring that may be significant to Bajoran people if it's brought to Bajor um, and knows that it means something. So get it to Bajor, okay? Quark meets Kira. She's in her quarters. She's not happy that he's coming there. She's meditating. She, I mean, there's a sort of vibe the whole episode that everyone's annoyed with Quark. And then, well, we'll go into that later. So Quark breaks out the, the earring that he reveals is from Cardassia 4. Kira looks at it like it's a considerable gift. And then we see that Jake is going to have a date. He's pretty hype about it. And he has all these ideas. And Ben is like, those ideas are terrible. You all should just like look at nature. And he's like, whatever, dad. <laughs> and then... Kira is like, Commander, we have to talk. So they meet for Arachtachino, which is like, well, only Ben gets Arachtachino. That's like a drink that they talk about. What it is, we'll never know. And <laughs> Kira's like, I need a freighter, a runabout to to pick up someone from Cardassia 4, a POW. But she's like, don't ask me what it's about. Don't ask me what it's about. And what does he do? He asks her what it's about. And she's like, mm, well, the earring is quite likely the earring of Lee Nallis. In fact, it is. The DNA checks out. Thought to be a dead Bajoran war hero whose body was never recovered. And she's like, I can't use a Bajoran ship. We just don't have the skills to do it. And the Bajoran provisional government is like, you can't do this. So we can't really mess with the uneasy piece we have right now. But she's like, Lee could like be a politician. The government sort of needs this. They could use a symbol. So O'Brien calls Cisco to show that they found some graffiti on in the ship by the Alliance for Global Unity, which is like better known as a circle. It's a group that just wants like only Bajorans in in Bajor. They don't want anybody in Deep Space Nine. They just don't want any more interventionalism and they don't really want any one part that just isn't Bajoran. No federation, no nothing. They are painted, that is upon as an extremist group. And Ben is like, we need more need more security. And he's thinking about whether he should let Kira get on the runabout 
He meets with Jadzia. He's like, hey, let's talk about baseball. And she's like, you know, I don't really like baseball. And Curzon didn't like baseball nearly as much as you thought he did. But he liked you, so y'all talked about baseball, which is a thing. People talk about baseball. And she's like, oh, by the way, um, give Kira the runabout. But Ben is like, he's worried about political unrest. But he's like, fine. He He's like, Miles, you can have the runabout, but y'all are going, you're going with Kira. You're going to pretend it's a Lesepian ship. And you can sort of, you'll be able to avoid scanners. They'll just, they'll not think that it's a, a runabout. And Kira's like, nah, because I don't want to do that. Because if we get caught, you know, we're not coming back. And, but they're also like, yo, if, Cardassia isn't re- releasing POWs, then they're really on some shit right now. They're not honoring the agreements. So on the trip, they're hailed by a Cardassian who reads the scan as a messed up ship. And they're like, oh, we got to bluff this if we get caught because they don't see the ship. They just get the signal. So like, if we get caught, this is going to be bad, bad news bears. So they, she keeps on being like, no, we're okay. Cause they're like, Hey, can we help you out? And she's like, no, we're okay. No, we're okay. And so then finally she makes up a goal. That's like, if you don't let us go, he's going to be tight. So let go. And they, they find the, the compound in Cardassian four. It's like a, not like it is a labor camp where people are doing hard labor in the sun. And there's many Bajorans there. It's not just like one or two. And they run into a Cardassian who they play a plot selling Kira as a prisoner for two latinum strips, which I think is a lot of latinum strips. You know, we never really get the conversion rate. You know, we don't, we don't know what inflation is like in a post scarcity world with some scarcity. I don't know. (laughs) And so she's put in a force field and he's like, what can you do for me? Show me how much you're worth. And it's gross. And so she knocks out the guard and opens the field. Turns out that Lee's friend sent the earring as a way to get Lee out. He sees the opportunity for Lee being freed because he's like, he's like a folk hero in the Bajaran world. So Lee gets phased. They get him. They realize that they're not going to be able to survive all of them because they want to really get all of the Bajorans back in the ship. So they have to leave some, leave some behind and they're, really upset about this. They get to Deep Space Nine and they bring a confused Lee and others on board. They bring him to uh, Bashir, also known as Dr. Horny. What's up, Angel? Hope you're well. Here meets Cisco. Ducat shows up talking to Cisco. It's like, oh, I didn't know about the camp and we're sending the surviving POWs home and they want to fix this and this is a good faith jet gesture. See how, see how fast we responded. We're good guys. I mean, does anyone think they're good guys, though? Um, Lee meets with Bashir. He's a, Lee Nallis is upset. He's confused. Everyone's like, who's this dude? They're noticing him. They're like, like people are starting, like crowds are starting to build around him. And Minister Jaro comes to talk to, talk to them. He is talking to Kira. He's like, look, publicly, I'm mad at you. But privately, I'm not mad with you. And Lee runs into a group who's like, say some words. So he says some words about affirmation and freedom. And Jaro's like, let's do some publicity. Cause like, you know, while I'm here, maybe I can get a little publicity as a treat. And 
Lee meets with Cisco. He's really grateful for some privacy. And he says one of the quotables of the episode, this morning I was a slave, tonight I am a hero. But he's he's like pretty overwhelmed and is he's overwhelmed, surprised, and sort of interested in the incredulity of his storied heroism and him being a possibility of stabilizing Bajor. He always wanted to free Bajor, but he just never thought that he would ever leave a labor camp. He was there for 10 fucking years. Then we go see Quark and Ron. They're counting money. Quark is doing that like one, one for you, one for me, one, two for me, one for you. But it's like five or six for me and two for you, something of that nature. And Ron's like, I'm frustrated. This is unfair. I'm annoyed. And Quark is like, yep, this is unfair. And starts giving him less money. And Ron is like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, your ruthless capitalism sucks. And then as that happens, and I wonder if this is supposed to be some sort sort of symbology behind this, but I don't know. Uh, Rom leaves because he's upset. And Quark is then attacked by three masked people in robes, and he's branded on his forehead. And he goes, he's seen by Bashir. Oh, and he's branded with this symbol, which is the symbol of like... um the circle or the group that we just talked about uh, earlier who were doing the graffiti. The graffiti people branded his forehead and he's understandably upset. And Bashir has the symbol removed. He's able to remove it. Kira tries to be nice, but she just wants Lee to talk to the people and and calm down this reactionary movement that's starting to boil in Deep Space Nine and the Bajoran zeitgeist and bejor she's like we need we need healing and then we go to another scene where jake and ben are talking ben's like what happened with your date and jake's date he reveals that his date was canceled because the the person that jake was hoping to see uh she's a bejoran and her dad is told that she can't date anyone that isn't bejoran and jake is understandably upset and Ben says that as unrest happens in Bajor, things are going to be happening. Um, but he's also like, you don't deserve this. No one deserves to be treated like this. He's able to be like a firm and holding for his son in a way that's very significant and, and interesting and beautiful, and, but also is tender and doesn't sugarcoat the shittiness of experiencing something like this. But then Ben is called because a because a Targaryen freighter was about to leave Deep Space Nine when they found someone who had snuck on board, and they're going on a two year mission. And guess who it is? Lee Nollis. You were right. <laughs> and then Lee Lee and Ben meet, and he's like, "Can I tell you a story?" He's like, "Okay." Lee was once a resistance fighter when all but three of his of his group had died. Lee killed a surprised Cardassian, like just like bathing, who turned out to be Gulzarel. It was accidental. He fell off a hill and surprised the dude. And and as the other dude tried to go for a phaser, he went for it. It was like not anything. It wasn't like some heroic thing. But it turns out the Zerael was was like a monster, terrible dude, count responsible for countless atrocities, and. His friends insisted on telling the story of his braveness and grit, and it got bigger and bigger with every retelling. He didn't want, Lee didn't want this. 
it was an accident. He's doesn't seem that excited about violence. And, um, he feels like he was once, he feels like he's a slave to his reputation and he's not the man that people think he is. And Cisco's like, yeah, that's true. You're not, you're not, but it's not about being a man. It's about being a symbol. You're a symbol for hope and you can grow into that. You don't have to be what you, you don't have to be one thing. You don't have to be one person. You, you are a symbol of resilience. You're, you're a, you're a legend and legends don't, aren't always feasible. They're not always like tangible things. And Lee is given a new title that doesn't exist, Navark, and is, uh, is set to replace Kira as the Deep Space Nine liaison. And Kira is recalled to Bajor to be continued. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. All right, so let's dive into the analysis. The first thing I want to talk about is the cabin fever that comes from living on a space station or ship. When Jake Sisko is talking to his father, about where to take a girl he likes on a date, there aren't many options because it's all the same spots. You saw this previously with Jake and Nog. They have few spaces, if any at all, to be kids, forcing them to be kids in adult workspaces. The hollow suites then are a form of mental health, but also an illusion of freedom. Absolutely. Often the way the hollow suites are used is to pretend you are no longer in outer space. This isn't the point of the scene, nor this episode, but there is a contradiction here. The whole point of this station and about Star Trek as a franchise, but also the Federation in-universe, is about freedom and exploration. But being on a ship or station and being enclosed by outer space and the whole structure, both physical and societal, is based around work, you're kind of trapped. There is no work-life balance. It's all work and pretending you have a life. You don't really have much freedom. You don't even get a childhood. You have freedom within the confines of your role and the space structure you're in. But it's like having freedom within a military submarine. And in a societal structural sense, it's an illusion that the US military represents freedom when not only do they not bring freedom, but the members within the military have no freedom. So it makes me think about how we somehow project freedom onto things that glaringly have no freedom. So it made me think about how does this work? How do we not recognize these contradictions, even when we fancy ourselves as people who can spot those things? And how do we project freedom onto things that are the opposite of freedom? What it is, is, is a, it's illusions and, and affordances and 
how we mentally will often tell ourselves things. And it's sort of that, that bad uh, example that's not real, where if you put a frog in water and slowly heat up the water, they won't notice it's boiling. That's not true. They will jump out the water once it gets hot. But it's pretty helpful idea. Like sometimes things that are apocryphal don't really matter because you you understand it or it might as well have happened. Like whether Mary Antoinette said, let them eat cake or not, she basically said, let them eat cake, right? So we we give ourselves illusions. And if we do things slowly and incrementally or just start telling ourselves things, we don't really know what's going on. So I think the first day that you're on a space station or you're in a place where you're given the illusion of of free will or freedom, you're like, oh, this sucks. But then you just slowly start telling yourself that it doesn't. And you're right, because there's this, everyone there is part of this beautiful utopia and working towards stuff, but also everyone's stuck on not quite a submarine, as you said, but but in some ways might as well be. Like if you're the son of the cap, the commander and you're essentially like growing up on a naval base, growing up on a military base, it's essentially the future version of being a military brat. Though Jake, Jake isn't really much of a brat, but that's besides the point. Like most of the people that work there, they're not going to Bajor that much. They're not taking runabouts. You're right. They're just living in this place and being like, oh, everything's fine. And it's not weird that we're a bunch of children being raised on during like a transitionary government period where everything's weird. I mean, if you think about it, it, they're kind of like the humans in the Matrix who live in a pod, except their pod is much bigger, but they live in a pod where they escape into virtual reality. Damn. And they have to stay in that pod to do work. But Matrix made that look like a dystopia, whereas in Star Trek, that's the utopia. But yeah, I think we project freedom onto things because that's our status quo. So we as people want to think that if we're in a place where we think we're doing well, that we're doing well. And I think for, for the adults there, they're, most of the, the adults are happy to be on Deep Space Nine. It's the children that are, that are less excited about it. Yeah. I mean, what we do know from the last season, though, were the Bajorans on Deep Space Nine aren't necessarily as happy as the White Federation members. No, not at all. Later, we're on the runabout with Kira and O'Brien, and there's a casual line from O'Brien where they're scanning for life forms and that he could single out Bajoran life forms. I know it was meant to just keep the plot moving and also a bit of lazy writing to make it easier to find the Bajoran prisoners, but that throwaway line has a lot of ramifications. But I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about it much, but when I have to think about it, you realize all of the things that this entails? Yeah, right? Like, what we do already know is Odo is the only non-humanoid, right? Everybody else are humanoid species, right? So then how are you differentiating one humanoid from the other? I'm not saying you can't, but then it starts to get into race science. Like, why did you do that? How did you do that? And here's the thing about race science. Socially conscious people might think they find it horrific, but there's already a lot of racism 
they wouldn't even notice to be racism, especially in the medical industry, science, psychology, all sorts of things that we just take to be normal, right? A lot of medical science was created with the from the point of view that regular or normal is a white dude or white woman. And that's just objectively false because everybody has different systems and different point of views and different contexts. And this is why it's so important for diversity in hospital settings and all medical settings. And without going into great detail of what I do when I'm working, but yeah, because studies are showing that, that a lot of people are mistreated in medicine. And I think a lot of it's not nefarious, but it affects a lot of people. It's baked in. It's baked in. And I remember the first time I really understood my privilege or one of the first times I was just with my friend. We had just done some exercising. It was a long time ago. And he, he was, uh, he's from, he's from Puerto Rico and we went to a store and we both grabbed water and I opened my water before we got to the cash register. And he was like, you know, I can't do that. Right. And I was like, you know, I don't, I never thought about this before. It was a long time ago. And I didn't, that, and a, a lot of other things pushed me to look into my implicit, my implicit privilege and how that affects me and how that affects others. Because a lot of people are taught, well, if you don't say the bad words, then you're not racist. But that's explicit. That's a caricature. Most, most people aren't like, yeah, I'm a racist, and then just start spitting epithets. Most, most racism is uh, banal, is quote-unquote benevolent, is not, not explicit. It is implicit. Thus, a lot of people get upset. Most, I'm looking at you white people, uh, get upset because I'm, I don't say the N-word, so I'm not racist. But, if, but you need to understand that you benefit from systems whether you say bad words. In fact, a lot of racist, homophobic, sexist, lots of ists um, are like are nice people, right? Quote unquote, nice people. You know, polite. They probably think they're nice. They don't think that their prejudices. They probably don't even think about their prejudices. Just like I never thought about opening up a bottle of water before paying was could be an issue for others, because because things were implicitly in me that I didn't know. And I had to actively go against it or like being told, cause like, I'm a tall dude. I'm, you know, tall white dude. And like, like my, my partner would be like, you know, sometimes like you take up a lot of space and that could like, she didn't say that like in a bad way. She's like, you know, be mindful that you take up space and to be thoughtful about your face when being around people or like, Wear bright colors when you run. These are things I never thought about. Not because I'm a bad person or I just don't think about it, but it is part of privilege. I know this is a long way of saying all this, but I think it could be beneficial for some people who, who are listening who might think that only explicit acts can be part of a system. Definitely. When really it's the implicit shit that we often need to change. For that scene, which I'm sure most Star Trek fans even progressive fans, if even if they're watching it today, may not notice. 
Imagine in reality, right? You saw a headline that said police now have scanners that could detect heat signatures of black people. <laughs> so many questions would rise up, right? Like, what the fuck? Why do you have that? How do you have that? When were you working on this? Who worked on this? How are you going to use this, right? But here, right, they already set up that Bajorans are this oppressed minority. And then we have this gadget that could detect their heat signatures, right? I'm sure that type of racism is so tacit and implicit. Even the writers who are supposed to be experts on this didn't even notice what they were writing. I would guarantee that if you did a search for this episode amongst writing and criticism, you, you, I don't know how likely it is you would have found someone who picked up on that. There is a lot of academic writing about Star Trek, not as much about Deep Space Nine. Well, that's starting to change. And certainly not as much about like episode deep dives. And this episode is really expositionary. So I don't know how many people have really looked at this episode like we have, aside from like some other episode by episode Star Trek shows, but they're not looking at it from a leftist lens or they're looking at it from a supposedly non-political lens. There's no such thing. We're doing it the best. That's why they need to listen to this. I hope they do. And I think this new format will be easier to access for people who are coming along for the ride now that are picking up. All right. So then in the prison camp, we see the writers directly addressing sexual imperialism, which always accompanies imperialism and occupation. The example of sexual imperialism people are probably most aware of from modern history is the Korean comfort women during Japanese occupation. The U.S. in particular likes to use this event for political reasons to make themselves look better or as Korea's saviors. Here's the part they don't tell you. The U.S. continued comfort women stations and sexual imperialism. Sex tourism in Asia is just rebranded sexual imperialism that the U.S. and the West continued. Wherever there are U.S. military bases are sexual assaults. Okinawa being another example. This sexual imperialism also connects to the adoption industrial complex in Korea, something probably people don't think about them connecting, but probably because they haven't thought about the origins of the adoption industrial complex in Korea. When you have imperialism devastating a country and sexual imperialism, you end up with babies, babies people can't raise. Mm -hmm. The adoption complex that rose out of that favored Western parents. A huge percentage of U.S. Koreans are adoptees. So the spoils of war become women and children. So again, a thing that happened that the writers use as a minor plot point that has major ramifications. If you're able to single out Bajoran life signatures, where did that come from, right? If you associate Asia with adopted babies and sex work, well, where did that come from, right? Yeah, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's like cause and effect, right? These are things I want people to think about. Not for Star Trek. I mean, it's a cool show and all, but no, I want people to use it, use these examples as fans of the show to better analyze history and politics. Again, it's like implicit things becoming explicit. If you weren't thinking that the Cardassian occupation probably involved sex crime of several different types, you are definitely realizing it, I hope, in this scene. 
you're like, oh, right. Whenever there's, whenever there's anything like this, there's also going to be that sort of, I was going to say barbarism, but I'm not sure that that's the right word. But if there's power, there's often sexual power of different types. And yeah, it's just like, it was like fucked up. And I'm sure the scene wasn't thought about like, oh, we're going to be fucked up. But it was. It was gross. They didn't fuck up the scene, in my opinion. It's just more like it's touching upon something that even the writers themselves might not have studied that much, right? They're just aware that this is something that happened. That's what, yeah, that's what I meant. I don't think they were, I just don't think they were putting, they were realizing what they were saying with what they were saying, which happens a lot on this show where they like accidentally touch on something that I don't know that they're trying to do. And sometimes the things that they're trying to do can be a little heavy handed. I think when you accidentally do something, sometimes you have a better opportunity. Moving on, I know we're now in a brand new season because I saw my first black Bajoran extra. Though he didn't get to escape with the rest of them. Classic black guy in a horror movie trope. Blanket, you might have missed it. <laughs> Back on the station, we see Cisco and Gull Dukat speaking, with Dukat saying, Cardassia will issue a formal apology. I don't know what the motive is for that, but you know how we've talked about during season one that the U.S. is Cardassia. Well, that's one thing the U.S. doesn't do. Apologize. No. Not even to apologize for some nefarious other reason. There will be no reparations, no truth and reconciliation commissions. The U.S. is absolute. God doesn't apologize. Not even for show. Well, maybe some gods do, but not the U.S. God. U.S. God doesn't apologize. When Cisco and Kira were done talking to Dukat, you get to see the United Federation of Planets symbol. And it looks like a combo of the EU flag and the NATO flag, the United Federation of Planets. You maybe notice something about symbols in the real world, how the EU flag, NATO flag, and the United Nations flag all look similar. You know, may or may not have laurels. I mean, you need laurels. <laughs> it's important. Laurels would never mean empire. Never. No, like Ducat is doing something that is purely political. And yes, something that America probably wouldn't do. We don't really apologize for our, our issues or problems. They're not that kind of villain. No, they're so good that most people don't think that they're villains or have any villainous qualities. And if you question it, how dare you? Now, one of the premises of this episode, a political argument that it's making, is that leadership can bring stability. And I thought that's interesting to think about because for many of us on the left, I think we come from the default that leadership is bad, right? That it leads to corruption. But we don't often think about the opposite end, which is stability. Yes, something can be broken up, but is that stable? So that's the paradox. That's constantly a point of conflict when people are thinking about a different system of governance. What do we do about leadership? How do we think about that? Often people will try to use semantic games and talk about leadership, but <laughs> using different words. So they haven't really solved the problem. No, They're just defining it differently, right? Which is kind of like avoiding the problem altogether, which conceptually then it doesn't avoid the problem. You're just rebranding it, renaming it. So yeah, I don't have any answers for that, but it is something that I think we should think about the other end of it 
the stability aspect. Now let's talk about the part of this episode and what's probably going to be an ongoing running theme of the show that made me the most uncomfortable, which is extremism, extremist groups, and terrorists. From a storytelling perspective, we see Kira for the first time in prayer, and then Quark interrupts her, and she's very annoyed by that. Shortly after that is when we first get introduced to the quote-unquote extremist group, The Circle. So it seems heavy-handed in making commentary about religion, Muslims in particular, and different religious sects. That religion can always lead to extremism, so there's good and bad religious sects based on how religious they are, and ultimately it's dividing, right? And then geopolitically, that divide of good and bad, different religious sects, different ethnic groups, is how the West has conquered. An interesting side note, as Quark interrupts Kira during worship, disrespecting her religion, bringing about her anger, that bookends with Quark being the first victim of the circle. I just got done listening to season one of Blowback Podcast on Iraq, which I highly recommend. But the West likes to portray the roots of foreign problems to boil down to terrorists and quote-unquote rogue nations. But the actual systemic root is imperialism and decisions and actions made by the most powerful countries, most of whom act as one powerful bloc, like a federation of planets. Also, the nationalism of white supremacy is not the same as the nationalism of colonized countries trying to gain independence. Right. It's just not, it's not, a, it's not an equal thing. Yes. So I didn't like how Bajoran nationalism was made to be the bogeyman for this episode, especially when story-wise, it's placed as being equivalent to Cardassian nationalism that we just saw in the prison camp. It's also interesting, the first time we see quote-unquote extremists is when Quark is being a shady capitalist, which you brought up, and they punish him, right? Yes. I don't know if the writers meant to tie these things together, but in the Western mind, right, terrorists and anti-capitalists are the same. But in reality, when you see the scene, it's hard to see the circle as the baddies for punishing a capitalist exploiter, especially after how bad Quark was acting. The liberals are probably thinking, well, still, you shouldn't brand Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I was like, I was making a couple allusions because there's also sometimes people make the illusion that the Ferenginar are, you know, uh, anti-Semitic analog. And so you have this guy counting money and is then branded by some people. But to one, to paint Bajarans as Nazis is, again, not the right equivalency. And I just think people to, to make the Ferengi as just like a, an analog for Jewish people is, I just, I don't buy it. I do have trouble with the, the, the way that they're painting the circle, uh, unintentional meme uh, pun, uh, the way they're painting the circle right away as like this just as bad group, you know, like when people are like, oh, well, well, they're just as racist as me, but, you know, talking to like a non-white person, like, mm, no, no. 
that's not that's not the case. It's got different contexts, and context is key. Now, is branding people that aren't the same ethnicity as you the right? No, it's fucking terrible. It's you shouldn't do that. But an oppressed group acting out is not the same as an oppressor group acting out. They're not equal. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Then we also have to consider the motives of the writers. Why portray a group as being colonized and oppressed, where you're also drawing real-life allusions to oppressed groups, just to show them, in their own way, being oppressive? What's the point you're trying to make? And if you're writing an oppressed group that people often analog to Palestinians, and if there is already a pre-existing stereotype that the Ferengi are Jewish people, should you have the Bajorans holding down and branding a Ferengi person? It becomes so much more problematic. When a lot of people 25 years ago were taught way more misinformation about Palestinian people, and the internet wasn't as wide, and the the agitprop taught to to be like, oh, well, Israel is the country that has the right no matter what, and the Palestinian people, you know, they had a choice to leave and they stayed. Like that sort of narrative was was more present. It was a lot more people 25 years ago were believed what they were fed about that relationship. Let me put it into perspective. At that time, they were using Palestine and the PLO to make the DPRK look bad. Meaning at the time, the reputation of Palestine was even worse than how people think of the DPRK today. Correct. To frame where we were back then. Right. And, and like from befriending a lot of the people that I've befriended on through the internet, through Southpaw, through my, my growing interest in all, all politics, not just like my context. Like I'm like, Oh, it turns out the like what I've been told about DPRK is not accurate. And like people use that as a proxy for like a bad country, right? Well, now they're using the DPRK like they did Palestine, right? Right. Whenever the US or the West has an enemy, they'll somehow randomly, like for no reason, throw the DPRK in there and be like, oh, well, it's obviously the axis of evil with Russia, the DPRK, and like Venezuela. And you're like, what does Venezuela and DPRK have to do with any of this? Or how does DPRK and Venezuela even relate to each other? You know, they just throw the DPRK into any new US Western baddie to make those baddies look worse because they've done such a good job demonizing the DPRK. They want some of that to rub off on whoever they want to make the enemy. So it could be like, to give a very like exaggerated example, maybe the U.S. has problems with Mars. Maybe there's like life on Mars, and, and there's beef between them. Then they're going to be like, "Well, there's a new axis of evil with Mars and the DPRK and some other random country, right?" Right. They just throw the DPRK in there to try to throw 
Mars under the bus. Yeah, they 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 painted people that were trying to liberate Palestine as terrorists. I mean, you see that even right now. Yes, but I just think that most people that have a conscious and a working mind when presented information will hopefully change information and more and more people are realizing the horror that Palestinian people have gone through. And when I say you see that now, you have somebody like President Zelensky of Ukraine saying multiple times that he gains inspiration from Israel because he likens Russia's invasion to Palestinians and Ukraine is like Israel, right? Yeah. There's a lot of leftists who support both Ukraine and Palestine, but you see a lot of libs online who are saying you can't support Ukraine and Palestine because Ukraine is more like Israel, right? So in that sense, it's still kind of like that 90s, 80s demonizing of Palestine that still exists, that they're this invader, they're this terrorist group. And it's Israel with their big GDP and their military who are actually the rebels, who are actually the underdogs in this situation, even though they have the backing of the West and especially the United States. This is a a strange comparison, but it's like people who are fans of Marvel movies who act like they're still part of a niche group or like part of part of a misunderstood class. Like I'm a nerd and, and don't make fun of the Marvel movies. It's, it's my little club. Like homie, I have to tell you that if your club is making the amount of money as Lichtenstein does, then you're not, you're, you're no longer, you know, the nerd class. You're no longer the bullied. You are the bully wearing a Hulk mask. That's it. That is it. And sometimes you have to use simple analogs sometimes because I feel like someone could see that and maybe use that logic to be like, oh yeah, you're right. Like in this, in this analog, you know, Israel and, and other countries that take advantage of imperialism and colonialism or are basically the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah, Marvel fans are kind of like that, right? In their mind, they got a persecution complex when they're the majority. Right, and and because they never change with the times. Maybe, maybe they were persecuted at one point, but culture changes. Yeah, nerdy, techie, rich white guys now run the world. Now going back to something you addressed in the recap about Lee Nallis and his origin story, I also didn't like Cisco talking about using lies for good in that scenario because it's bi-directional. You can use lies to prop up settlers like the U.S. founding colonizers, but you can also use lies and symbols to vilify an already beaten down country and people. And you can also use this to say everything good you heard about a revolutionary in the global South is based on lies. It's that U.S. racist thing of all races are racist. All countries are equally bad. All countries do bad things. We all lie for self-interest. Western culture is human nature and we're all selfish beings and we make everything bad. It's just not quite it. That's just not quite how things are. Why it bothered me so much was also because of who was saying it and who that person is supposed to represent in real life and who the writers were writing this for. It came off like American exceptionalism. Because there's this American exceptionalism of, yes, a lot of this exceptionalism is based on lies. 
but it was for the greater good. And everyone does it, except not everyone is the world's hegemon. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that I've been saying a lot this episode and things that will touch on this season with obviously not giving too much weight is that in the 90s, it was there was an idea, and it still exists, to be like, oh, well, well, hate or prejudice in any way is equally bad to all other things. That was a very 90s thing. Right. And that was when the the argument or the philosophy about reverse racism was really popping off. Now it's coming back. Uh, no surprise, because people like to be reactionary. But there was this argument. It's like, oh, well, well, you're racist against white people. And that was when I heard the argument, because I was a kid, that you know, racism also connotes power. So there, there are differences. It's not built the same. Cardassian Car- aggression is not the same as Bajoran aggression. It's just not. In the 90s, for the young people who are listening, believe it or not, it used to be the liberals who were very proud to say this because it used to be kind of a flex where they said, I don't care if you're black, blue, white, or purple. I'm equally racist to everyone. That used to be something liberals used to say because back then being colorblind was like the pinnacle of liberal social justice. I treat everyone like shit. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity offender. Yeah. Very popular 90s thing. Yes. Which is why a lot of Gen Xers and people who grew up in that area are disproportionately Trump's base. A lot of his base is made up of Gen Xers, which it was a very reactionary time. It was kids who grew up during Reagan and then became adults, you know, during that 90s period. And it's just like that Mountain Dew, like, fuck it all. Fuck everybody. Like that kind of nihilism. Fuck everyone. I'm punk rock. Right. And then that became Trump's base. Like that kind of very aggressive, angry, macho, but not country Western, right, type of generation. Then they've, of course, later on became reactionaries. Right. Because they always were. It's like that meme. Was it this? It always was. Remember like the absolute disaster that like Woodstock 2 or whatever that they tried to do, the Gen X generation tried to do Woodstock all over again, and it was like the biggest disaster, right? Well, it was Woodstock 3. There was Woodstock 94, which was like a minor success, and there was Woodstock 99, which was a disaster. Is that what it was? There's a movie that just came out about it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that was like the unofficial birth of like what became MAGA. Yeah, it tracks. I mean, that's like essentially 23 years ago. So yeah. Now there's also the simplicity of you just put a quote unquote good person in a powerful position and you get good things, right? Which is like kind of how this episode is painting Cisco trying to put Lee Nallis in charge of everything, right? So easy. This guy seems like a good guy. Just put him in charge, even though he has like no political economic theory or, you know, understanding of how any of this works now that he's out of prison, right? Yeah. He's not analogous to like a Nelson Mandela character because Nelson Mandela was like very educated about politics and had strong political beliefs, right? This is not that, right? And so in this simplicity of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, there's this other side of it where you put good person into a powerful position, you get good things. And if you happen to get bad things, well, it's still coming from a good heart because it was still coming from a good person. So it just happened accidentally, right? It's this binary centrist worldview that isn't just in Star Trek. It's just very liberal media, right? Especially during that time. 
Straight up. Now I did like the use of Minister Jaro as the politician and opportunist. And then we ended with Jaro abruptly replacing Kira. I was definitely like, what's going on? What is Jaro up to? You got a very famous actor playing him. So, you know, this is going to be an important role. And we already know he's an opportunist and a politician. So he must be up to something. Is he good? Is he bad? I don't know. So this is where we ended. Overall, what did you think about this episode and how it ended? I think it's like a pretty acceptable season premiere. I guess I'd give it like a three out of five. You know, it's not just expository. In fact, a lot of the exposition you don't even realize is going, but it's really like a buildup. It's like to to reinvite you into the world. Um, the effects and everything has gotten a little bit better. The makeup is a little bit nicer. We're going to be around for a while. And even in my last rewatch, I'd sometimes skip around. Like I didn't watch every single episode. Um, so I haven't really watched this episode in a while. So I was like, oh, this is better than I remember, but it's still not like a stellar Star Trek episode because it's still like expository and the the hate crime on Quark just like didn't work for me in <laughs> 2022. Yeah, the Bajorans doing a hate crime. <laughs> the Bajorans doing a hate crime on Quark was just like, mm, it's a little much. It's a hard sell today. And again, I think I think this the sell of Bajorans as just like a Bajoran quote like quasi hate group, I just think could have been been done a little better. I have you watched Picard at all? No. I'm pure. I don't want anything else to bias my view of DS9. I love that about you. I'll actually say this about the episode. Since, and you know this, right? Because we just did the previous season together. That's all the context I have. I mean, I've seen Star Trek, The Next Generation, you know, a long time ago when it was actually on air, right? So I have some familiarity with Star Trek and I saw the original series in reruns and I've seen some movies, but I was never like a hardcore fan where I watched things sequentially. So I knew like the flow of the story and how everything fit together. I just caught at random episodes here or there, but it was enough to understand the pop cultural phenomenon. Right. But with that said, the first time where I've watched something in sequence in order, paying attention and trying to immerse myself in the universe is the first season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's wild. So, you know, the first season isn't that good. So from the context of just having watched season one, and that's my basis, this episode was pretty solid. That makes sense. I could see how coming back to here where like the writing is a little bit better, the production value is better. You could be like, oh yeah, this is a pretty good episode. The acting was even better. Oh yeah. I mean, Frank Langella. I mean, come on. Yeah. To have the show, you had to have season one. So I appreciate it. But the, the hill is going up. We're biking uphill <laughs> right now, my friend. Yeah. And you know what? As the show gets better, I probably will have more political criticisms because for the show to get better, it probably has to dive more and more into drama, tension, politics, and interpersonal conflicts and social conflicts, right? No comment. I'm hoping to enjoy Star Trek even more going forward. Right. And this it's funny. Well, I don't know if it's funny, but it's interesting because this is the Star Trek series that people say, this is when Star Trek got political. Again, everything is political. So I just, I deny that argument. But 
Yeah, this is for some people like, oh, this is the political one. No, it's just like the best one. I look forward to that. Well, you're in for a treat because to go to say a trope that I've said before, but to say again, that comes from Star Trek The Next Generation, this season is when they grow the beard, which is the opposite of jumping the shark. (laughs) Okay. Now, Scott, can you tell us a bit about the next episode? Well, the next episode is a continuation of this episode. It's called The Circle, and we'll further go with this plot line about Lee and Kira being taken off Deep Space Nine. And again, we'll just let us know what the vibe of season two is. Mm. Until then. Da-da-da-da.